disruption zone. Opportunity lives where the status quo dies. Talking to the greatest innovators, disruptors, and off-the-wall inventors, we can scrounge up. You laugh, you'll learn, you'll be inspired. Now, here are your hosts, Leland Conway and Cameron Mills. So, Kentucky's Governor Steve Bashir vetoed a bill that was passed by the state legislature that would allow for charter schools. There's some pretty stunning comments in his response to that bill. Just read a couple of them for you. He said, uh, quote, the bill would send taxpayer dollars to charter schools that have boards that are not elected and are not answerable to the people. Public dollars being spent without a, that oversight. Okay, this is ridiculous. You would choose as a parent to send your kid to that school or not. No one is made to go to that school. And if that school doesn't succeed in attracting students to it, then it will lose its charter. So there's no there's no lack of accountability here, which he went on to say the bill would send taxpayer dollars to those charter schools and they're not even required to comply with the same controls and accountability measures as our public schools. Well, what accountability measures are the public schools actually uh, using? Because they're failing. Anyway, my friend, State Senator uh, Ralph Alvarado is going to join us uh, on the podcast today to talk about this very issue. First of all, I want to thank our sponsor, Louisville Cabinets and Countertops. They are so awesome. If you're in the mood or in the, the market or in the uh, that place where you are ready to make your dream kitchen come true, I want you to give my buddy Tim Montgomery at Louisville Cabinet, uh, Cabinets and Countertops a call. I'm not just saying this because they sponsor the program. I'm saying this because that we were customers twice. They did our kitchen and our master bathroom. Loved it. And I'm pretty sure that the work they did in our kitchen is part of the reason our house sold in Oldham County in less than a day. Call 502-930-3304. Talk to the great designers on staff who will help you build your dream kitchen. If you already know what you want and you're a do-it-yourselfer or you're a contractor, they have cabinets in stock that are high quality, super affordable, and they don't have any problems with the supply chain. So give them a call today, 502-930-3304, Louisville Cabinets and Countertops. Now our conversation with State Senator Ralph Alvarado. Let's jump right into it so we can get you from one thing to the next. I appreciate you. First of all, I appreciate you uh, being willing to come on the podcast with us. Um, oh, yeah. I, let me start with this. We, you know, we've been talking about charter schools. Kentucky's been wanting charter schools for a long time. Clearly, if you look at parents, uh, regardless of what their socioeconomic background is, they want charter schools. They want school choice. They want to be able to put their kids in schools that will help their kids uh, with better targeted education. You guys in the legislature have recognized that. You passed a bill, and the governor has vetoed it. Where do we stand with this? Um, I, well, it's, it was a, it's always a close vote. Um, I think we're to the point now where we have the next couple of days, we've got to make a decision if we're going to override that veto. I, for one, would like to see that done. Um, I you know that we need a, a simple majority, at least a majority of the members. You need 51 in the House and you need 20 in the Senate to override the veto. I think it cleared by bigger than more than 20 votes in the Senate. I think it was right at 51 votes in the House. So if all 51 members who supported that bill uh, will vote to override the veto, I think it becomes law anyway. Um, there were a lot of, you know, when that bill passed, there was a lot of some compromises made to it. I mean, it's still, uh, you know, the, the authorizers for charter schools have to be the local school board. So um, if it's a school board that it has a, a, above a certain amount of students, uh, in their entire school district, then they can go. If a charter is denied, they can still go to the to the you 
know, the Board of Education uh, statewide to, to kind of appeal those decisions. Yeah. Um, but a lot of, I know when I voted for this, some of my school board members in Clark County were concerned and were worried and we think this is going to be harmful. And my question was, how is it going to be harmful? It has to be approved through you guys, the school board. Uh, and the limit is 7,500 students. And I think we have 5,300 students in Clark County. So I said, you all have control about, you know, if, if you want to have a, a new operator that wants to come in, you have to basically authorize it. Otherwise, you get veto power on coming through. And so I think it gives an opportunity. And we know that our school board members are elected individuals. So it'll give uh, uh, it'll give local I think a lot more people are paying attention to our school board elections now and, and give them an opportunity uh, to vote people in or out based on their decisions on something like that. But uh, we, we've been, I mean, I've been a proponent for school choice, man, since I've gotten into the General Assembly. I think when I ran, I was asked what my position was on charters and that I was supportive. And, you know, I've, we've drafted legislation for things like education opportunity accounts, scholarship tax credits. Uh, anything that we can do to give uh, as many people the options uh, really for their own education here in the state of Kentucky. Yeah. Um, well, what you just said really undermines a quote by the governor uh, in reaction to or in explaining his veto. Um, on WKU's public radio, he actually said the bill would send taxpayer dollars to charter schools that have boards that are not elected and not answerable to the people. Public dollars being spent without that oversight. He went on to say they're not even required to comply with the same controls and accountability measures as our public schools. Based on what you just said and how that bill set up, that's pretty much a bald-faced lie because the yeah, school it, districts yeah. themselves would decide whether they can be existence or not. That's right. And so, and, and again, that's dependent on the amount of children. So your more populous counties, Fayette, Jefferson, Boone, Kenton, Madison – some of these, they've got a large number of students, more than 7,500 students in the school system. When you apply to be a charter, the school board still is the first filter. And if they say no, you can have a second first appeal at the uh, local level. If they still say no, then you can go to the state board of education, and they, they can either say yes or no at that level. Mm -hmm. um, so it can, it can get away from them. But, um, yeah, it has to be authorized. If you're a smaller county, um, I don't know that you're going to have too many people trying to operate because they're charter schools that, you know, the, the way the bill that we passed years ago on charters, you had to have a minimum of a hundred students in your school. And there's lots of regulations around that as far as being able to operate one. So if you're in a small County, you got to have a lot of people willing to come into your school there. But then again, you'd have to go through your local school board. Uh, so yeah, I think again, not, not the first time the governor has said something that isn't necessarily true. Yeah. <laughs> so it doesn't surprise his comments. Yeah, well, it, it irks me because the, the implication that here we have across America right now, we have a national movement of parents wanting to be put back in charge of their children's education from what are, what their children are allowed to read to what they're being taught about sex and gender to what they're being taught about uh, COVID and how they're being restricted with COVID. There is a national movement afoot that is overturning school boards nationwide, even in San Francisco. They have taken yep. school boards back for him to sit there yep. and say that parents wouldn't have access, that the people wouldn't have access. Any any school district that puts a, count, a, a charter school under this bill, it would be as a direct reaction to the demand from the parents telling the school board that's what they want. Right. Right. Exactly. And, and I think it's uh, and again, uh, it's just, I can't tell you how many folks, uh, even when I did door to door in Fayette County uh, four years ago when I ran. Uh, the, the two hottest items, and mind you, I'm running as a state senator, so I'm talking about state issues. I heard it from people that were Republican, Democrat, black, white, rich, poor, 
their their concerns were was the taxation from the local school board, which I reminded them was something done by a locally elected official that they have a right to vote in or out. Um, they were upset about that, and they wanted to see uh, charters. Uh, and, a, and a lot of people were saying, listen, I want to have this option for myself. And I remind people that when it comes to school choice, there are people in Kentucky that school choice exists for. I mean, for me, I could send my child to any school I wanted to in the state of Kentucky. I could have moved to any public school system I wanted to in Kentucky. My kids have school choice. My family has it. However, your average middle or lower socioeconomic uh, status family in the state of Kentucky does not have that choice. They can't just up and move to where they want to. They can't send their kids. And and so so as much as we can do to broaden that, to give other individuals those same opportunities, I think is crucially important. And it's being asked for by people in, in our in our state and from families across the spectrum that, that want to have this option. I think the more that we can create, and look, our public schools are great for, I mean, they do a great job for a lot of kids. They do very, very well. Um, a lot of families very happy, wonderful. If they're doing great there, then yes, we don't want to disturb that child's education. But there's others who aren't uh, doing as well or perhaps uh, isn't the best setting. And lots of countless stories from around the country where this has been established, right. where those kids have had an opportunity to go to a different school uh, kind of environment and succeed and do well. And so it benefits everyone in that situation. You know, it's interesting. Yeah. I, I live in Colorado now. And, um, of course, once a Kentucky boy, always a Kentucky boy. So I pay very close attention to what's happening in my home state. But here, here in Colorado and Denver, there was just a, a study released that showed that African-American children and Latino children in Denver public schools were uh, specific ones. It wasn't all of the schools, but they tested a few of the schools. And those children were coming in at 3% in terms of having to be on the bar with like what they needed to be doing in reading in third grade. If I remember correctly, that was the statistic. It was stunning. It was absolutely stunning. Yeah. And and sure. I know I remember in Louisville seeing statistics that uh, minority children around 30 percent. We hear the left in America talking a lot about equality. And yet what the outcomes in these schools and it's not driven by racism, it's driven by a lot of factors, but it really includes just failing our kids at the basic school level. And if you look at parents, here's a statistic that a lot of people might be surprised by African-Americans and Latinos enthusiastic supporters of school choice 74 percent of african-americans favorite 71 percent of latinos favorite so how how can they out of one side of their mouth talk about uh you know equality of outcomes when in reality their system is not working and the people including the ones they claim on the left and in the teachers unions claim to want to help are also crying out for the ability to choose where their kid goes because they see where the good schools are and they want their kids in those schools. Right, right. And, and, I'll, and I'll tell you, the, uh, that, that's the truth. I think it's, uh, you know, with, within the minority communities and having, you know, my, the, the bill that we're, we're passing and the, op, you know, the things like educational opportunity accounts, scholarship tax credits would have helped a family like my own. I mean, my parents really sacrificed. And, and I think when you come from Latin American countries, I can speak at least from that culture, a lot of those families know that people who succeed and do well are the kids who often will have private education in their home countries. Right. Not every child has an opportunity to public education beyond the sixth grade or the eighth grade there. Uh, you have to pay for high school or you have to, to pay to get a college education, obviously. So if you don't have those funds, you can't. So every opportunity you can get your children into those types of educational systems culturally is kind of understood that, hey, my child will have the best opportunity for success there. Um, but to have a group say, we know what's best for you, 
um, is the reason why you're seeing politically a mm, lot of yeah. Latinos leaving the Democratic Party, looking at, and there's always been a, a Latino and Hispanic base within the Republican growing now because of these kinds of issues. You're starting to see a lot of African Americans who traditionally leaned, obviously, uh, to support for the Democratic Party, taking a look at the Republican side, saying, you know, sometimes these are some of the policies that we've been told for a long time and things have not improved for us. Yeah. Maybe it's time to look at the other side of the fence and see it. And you're starting to see a lot of people change their political leanings because of these kinds of issues. I'm going to zero in on a, a, a thing that you just said there, because I agree with you. And I think that there is a movement across America, especially among minority communities, to take that second look because they look and saw, you know, regardless of how you felt about Trump as president, the decisions that were made during his tenure uh, made the economy the best it's been in my lifetime and the best it's been in my lifetime for minorities. They saw that. They saw their paychecks going up. They saw that they had paychecks. People in America were able to buy and spend and raise and save and do all these things for four short years. And then it all went away. It went poof. You know, and then we find out that they're doing these crazy things with our kids' minds in schools. And a lot of that was exposed by the shutdowns during the pandemic, right? Because, right. Ki- you know, parents all of a sudden are like looking right into the classroom going, holy crap, what are they teaching our kids, right? So right. you mentioned a fence. Do you think that the Republicans should do more to tear down that fence so that there's not a oh, fence yeah. there? You know what I mean? Because sometimes I feel like when I when I talk to my friends that are minorities, they're like, man, you know, we really would take a second look at that if if they come talk to us and I feel like yeah, sometimes there's yeah. a fear to go talk to those folks because the media tells you that they only like Democrats and it's just not the case when you drill down. Right. No. And so that's absolutely true. So first of all, you think about Latin American countries, I mean, in their government structures, there are a lot of democracies, the same debates that are had in Latin American countries are the debates we have here in America about smaller government, less taxes, bigger government, more taxes. Um, and there's philosophies that are present there. Um, so those exist, I think, first and foremost. I just had a meeting with a member of RNC uh, who came to Kentucky and wanted to talk about outreach into the minority communities. And I've informed them. I said, I've been preaching this for since I've been involved politically. Ronald Reagan talked about this when he was president, about how the Hispanic community is just naturally uh, is naturally a Republican base and that we just have not reached out, that we listen to what the media tells us, that the perception is that you're brown in any way. You're a Democrat, and that's just simply not the case. Uh, when I gave a speech in 2016 at the National Convention, I kind of addressed this as quickly as I could, too, that the same values that immigrants have and Hispanics have coming to this country are the same values that Republic, the Republican Party espouses, really about individual responsibility and individual freedoms, work, you know, the proper work ethic, belief in church and in God and in individual responsibility, all those things. People that come to this country are fleeing situations where they're looking for that. They're also looking for law and order. Mm. And that's something that this country affords that they don't have in their home country. of your birth, you can achieve whatever level you're willing to do as long as you work hard and you study hard and you obey the laws of this country, that this country is willing to give you that opportunity. We, we need to understand that, really. Um, I had a young man I met when the, during the Trump campaign who had supported Obama eight years prior. Mm. It was a guy out of New Jersey. Uh, when he registered to vote, he said he, he didn't know. Somebody came to him in his community and said, hey, are you registered? No, I'm not. Well, here, and it was kind of a Democratic operative and said, we're going to put you, you're brown, so we're going to put you down as a Democrat. And he said, okay, because he didn't know. He didn't know the platform. Wow. And they said, we're going to help your father's business. He wound up helping Obama get elected in 2008. Two years later, found his father's business went under because of the policies passed 
by the Obama administration. And that prompted him as a 20-year-old to say, wait a second, they promised me all this stuff. I helped this guy, and my family is worse off. And when he, he decided to look at both platforms and read them on his own wow. and said, whoa, I, I don't agree with anything over here, and I agree with all of this over here. And he suddenly realized, you know, I'm on the wrong party, and he switched parties and then <laughs> was working for Trump to get elected in 2016. That wow. happens probably more often. Most most people that are, you know, they're busy living their lives, they're working hard, they're trying to raise families, they're not worried about their political structure. And I'd say the Hispanic base typically votes based on their pocketbook. There is a base Republican amount there, there's a base Democrat amount, but, the you know, the majority of the people are in the middle and just take a look at their financial situation. I spoke to a lot of folks during uh, Trump's administration, and I was worried about Latino voters and and when I would ask them, they said, well, you know, uh, illegally here in the country working. And I asked him, he goes, you know, he's not wrong. I am here illegally. I am here by breaking the law. He's a loud politician. We're used to loud politicians in my home country. So, you know, it doesn't bother me. But he opened up his wallet and he showed me the amount of money in his wallet. He goes, but look at the amount of money I'm making here under this guy. <laughs> this money went back to support my family. So as far as I'm concerned, keep this train going. Uh, I'm making money. I'm doing better. I'm okay with it. Wow. That's probably how the average Hispanic voter will vote is with their pocketbook. If things are going well economically, if I'm out of poverty, if I own my home, if I've got better opportunities for my family, if I'm making the most money I've ever made in my life, things are going great. Keep that person in place. If I'm starting to lose it, you know, right now, everybody's seen a loss of wealth under this president or President Biden. They start looking at the guy saying, this guy's not any good for me or my family. Let's switch. And I think you're going to see a lot of Hispanic voters come out this upcoming cycle um, and find it easier to vote for Republicans than ever before financially and also just from a social angle. I think they're realizing the lack of common sense that we're seeing out of the Democrat Party these days uh, just from all the things that just, you know, just things that we've known as facts throughout our lives for years that suddenly the Democrats are trying to say, no, this isn't really how reality is. And I think a lot of I think a lot of Latinos who are socially very conservative people are starting to look uh, at going things in a different direction. So I, I'm, I'm encouraged. I'm, and the party has actually reached out to me as one of the individuals to say, hey, what can we do? I'm like, you just got to get involved, yeah. get out, reach, let them know what we believe in, why we believe in those things, respect people's decisions on that. But Univision and Jorge Ramos on, on TV is a big, he's a big, obviously, operative for the Democrat Party. Uh, he's obviously in people's faces on TV every night when, when Hispanic people are watching the news and listen to that angle. We've got to start offering the opposite point of view and make sure that we reach out because I think they're just waiting for someone to reach out to them yeah. and present our case. So, so I, I like this movement where there's people registering people to vote at gas stations because that's where you meet yeah. every American. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. it, 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 that's where they yeah. are. And that's, they're all crying. You know what I mean? They're all at the gas yeah. pump crying. It's like, Hey, uh, how about a solution here? <laughs> so. that's, that's a great, it's a great idea. And, and, you know, really, I, I think again, a lot of, you know, if you look at people that are immigrants from other countries, if they open their mouths in their home countries politically, and you're on the losing side of something, you can get taken out, right. you know, you get ostracized. So people often keep their opinions to themselves. But I think I think people would be surprised. I mean, the Hispanic base, conservative base, is probably about 30% is probably conservative Republican. You probably have about a 40% Democrat. The rest is really in the middle and right. will swing. And I, I just think we just, you know, another group that's often not talked about is our Eastern, you know, Eastern Indians. Uh, kind of a lot of people from Asian uh, backgrounds, 
um, a lot of those folks are uh, also people that are just not approached. People don't go after, and um, and without that, I think they you tend to lose a you know an opportunity to present your case and your vision of what America be. Um, and I, I don't know why, but we just haven't done as good of a job of reaching that and not let the press, um, you know, kind of with, with the, what they've done in the past is try to paint people a certain way based on how they look. I, right. I, I've been invited to speak at ACLU and at Turning Point meetings, both for Hispanic uh, young people. And I give them the same talk is know what you believe, know why you believe it, fight for those beliefs. Um, you know, but don't let anybody tell you how you should believe based on how you look. And, you know, and I remind them that you can deal with them or uh, pull out a weapon and threaten people. All that does is it just builds the bias uh, against you. If you want to get back at somebody who doesn't like you based on how you look, uh, you know, become more. Be, yeah. be more of an American than them. Get a higher education. Work harder. Achieve more. You elevate yourself, your family, your community, and your state and your country when you do that. And the person who doesn't like you has to watch you succeed and swallow that. And that's the best revenge you're ever going to get. And yeah. I remind them all of that very issue. That's how you address those issues. I love it. I love it. We're talking yeah. with State Senator Ralph Alvarado. Um, you know, I wanted to ask you about, because when you gave that speech at RNC, you mentioned that earlier. Uh, I, that was awesome. You freaking nailed it. You knocked it out of the park. Um, how nervous were you going into that? Because the whole country's watching <laughs> you at that point. Is that the most nervous yeah. you've ever been? No, you know, um, no, it was it was an interesting, I'll tell you when I was nervous was when I was writing that speech, um, and it, it, there's a long story behind it, but effectively, um, the way that came about was, you know, when Trump, Trump became a nominee, um, I was watching, uh, you know, uh, you know, watching Fox and, and kind of seeing what they were saying, and, and what came up was, well, what matters to Hispanic voters is immigration, is what they kept saying, and that, that isn't true, I mean, it, it does matter. But it matters like it matters to every other American. If you're a legal uh, Hispanic American citizen here and you're able to vote, what matters to you is what matters to everybody else. You know, it's health care, education, taxes, all these different things. Um, it, it isn't just immigration. That's number five or six on the list. Now, this year, obviously, the southern border is back open and it's becoming a bigger problem. But I wrote an email uh, to somebody that was connected to RNC and just said, hey, listen, whoever, whoever talks about the appeal to the Latino voter please make sure they talk about these things. And I sent them a big rant of an email. And someone actually read it. Somebody read it and saw it. And I, I had helped introduce Rand Paul when he was running uh, for president earlier that year. And someone had that on C-SPAN and saw my speech. And they, and they said, hey, look, we might be able to use this guy. I got a phone call um, from the Trump campaign when he came to speak in Cincinnati uh, in July that year. And he wanted to meet with me. And I was... I thought, what did I do wrong? You know, he, he doesn't know who I am. So, and I was, I was a member of the, uh, I was a delegate that year uh, for 2016, and I was a member of the Rules Committee. And so I later found out, I think he was just wanting to make sure that I was with him, so I wasn't going to blow up the rules on the Rules Committee. And so I got to meet the guy, and, and President Trump was just a, just a genuinely nice man. I think people, you know, the, the media portrays him a certain way, but just a very generous, very nice guy. Anyway, um, I got a call. We were at a legislative conference in Lexington. I received a phone call from uh, a guy named Bill Greenlee, who was with RNC, and he called me up and said, hey, listen, uh, this is Bill Greenlee with RNC. Who am I talking to? I said, I'm Ralph Alvarado. I'm, you know, I'm a physician in states. Oh, yeah, 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 you're the doctor. I know who you are. Listen, we're looking at putting you in the program, so uh, stay tuned. And he hung up. Oh, wow. And I was like, I, and I'm like, who is this guy? So I, I called my contact with RNC, and they said, yeah, I got that call too. 
Um, they think I'm your agent. I hope you don't mind. <laughs> they, they, want you to, they want you to speak at the convention. And I'm like, what? I, I was kind of stunned, you know? And, and mind you, getting asked, I'm a state legislator. It's like being a double-A pitcher being called to the majors. <laughs> right. the, pitch in, the pitch in the playoffs, you know, throw a couple of innings, let's see what you can do. So I was um, – so the guy called me back and said, listen, yeah, uh, it's going to be uh, on day three, uh, 9 o'clock. You're going to get six minutes. And um, I said, is that a.m. or p.m. is what I asked him. Because I've been to the convention before, and there's, you know, there's daytime speeches. And he said, no, that's p.m. I said, that's prime time. He goes, yes, it is. Don't F this up. People would give a body part for this. Uh, don't screw this up. Uh, and I thought, uh, how does this work? Well, when you go to Cleveland, we were leaving for Cleveland the next day. My wife and I and my kids were coming with us just as guests. And I, he goes, they'll, they'll talk to you about it there. When I got to Cleveland, um, they, uh, I met with a speech writer, and I said, how does this work? Do you guys write a speech? He goes, no, no, no. You write your own speech. And I said, uh, what do you want me to say? You say whatever you think needs to be said, is what he told me. And he goes, the theme is making America first. That was the theme that evening. He goes, so, but you say whatever you think needs to be said. And that's when my stomach went into my throat. And I thought, man, I got a week before the convention starts. And I'm a rookie in my first term. And again, a double A pitcher being called to the majors, probably, you know, throwing the playoff for an inning. And yeah. I thought, man, you know, I better not screw this up. And I had dinner that night with someone, um, a guy named Scott Jennings, you probably know Scott. Oh, I know Scott. Scott's a good friend. Good he, dude. He was up, and I talked to Scott, and I said, Scott, this is what they told me. He goes, look, they didn't call you up here for your opinion on uh, on the Middle East. He says, you are you were brought up here because of an email that you wrote and because of what you said there. They want to they hear that angle. So the speech I had, was it was longer. It told more of my story. Um, and when I gave it to the speechwriter, he, he said, that's too long. It's got to be 100 words a minute. So I got it down to about 800 words. And he goes, yeah, it's, I said, it's perfect the way it is. He goes, yeah, that's, this is where it gets hard. You need to shrink it further. And so I said, I don't know what to cut out. I turned it over to them, and they got it down to about 650 words, 30 words, something like that. And when I, and then they have you rehearse it beforehand. There's a, there was a speech coach that um, they helped us kind of use a teleprompter if you've never used one before, and they kind of walked you through the process of what would happen. So you got to go on the stage and and see the, you know, the kind of the whole uh, scenario there before you did it. And then when I rehearsed the speech, I got it done in three and a half minutes. And I was upset. <laughs> and I'm like, this is going to, I'm leaving, I'm leaving money on the table. I said, you can't, you know, look, my longer speech would have been better. And the guy said, well, that's what they approved. You'll get some applause. And I said, but a lot of this is a story. It's not really going to drive a lot of applause. And, and so and then in the middle of that, because uh, I had talked to Spanish media prior to that, and they asked me if I was going to speak in Spanish, and I hadn't really planned it. But I asked the speech coach, I said, well, how about, will they let me say something in Spanish? And then the guy, the guy looked at me and he, he said, well, what do you want to say? And I started telling him in English. And he goes, no, 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 give it to me in Spanish. You wanted to hear my accent. And when he heard that, yeah, Spanish is my first language, he said, okay. Uh, and they added it in at that point. That's awesome. So I kind of added the Spanish part at the end. And then I, the last line about Hillary Clinton, not, you know, the original line was that you don't own our vote. And, right. um, you know, and, and I added that on the day of. Because uh, I was on the Laura Ingram show, and she said, "Hey, you ought to end it with a good punch." And I thought, you know, that's true. I need a good punchline at the end, and and so we did it, and it and it worked. And then when I got out there, um, the lady that went before me uh, was trying to memorize her speech. She couldn't read off a teleprompter. She had a hard time with that, and got lost and was kind of rambling. And and uh, so as they tried to get her off the stage, when I got out there, the, the it was like a train station. Everybody was milling around. No one was focused or paying attention. And I went out about five to ten minutes early because of the person before me and a video they had canceled. So 
when, but when I got out there, um, once I got into the routine, it was just maintaining my speed, make sure I don't talk too fast. And it was a rush it, you, when you get applause from that many people right. and, and when some of the things ring true, it was just a real rush. I was probably more nervous riding it than delivering it, but yeah. it was, uh, a memory I'll never forget. I mean, it's one of those things, once-in-a-lifetime kind of opportunities that uh, a lot of fun. Yeah, that's super cool. What a great story. I love it. And your speech was fantastic, by the way. It, it hit the, exactly the right tone. I was very proud uh, being that, you know, you were you were a Kentucky legislator and, um, you know, just, you know, all of that. It was it was really awesome to see. Um, but, yeah, I can, I can almost feel, you know, I've been on Fox News a couple times as a kind of a guest pundit, and never in my life have I been more nervous but also excited than before that very first hit. And it, it was, it was nothing like I expected and it was everything I expected all at once. So, right. you know, right, it's, it's, right. So, it's so awesome when you get to do stuff like that. Um, and you mentioned Scott Jennings. He's been on this podcast many times. He's a very good guy. I love him to death and uh, uh, just a brilliant, brilliant political tactician as well. So yeah. um, he helped, he helped guide me through a lot of that. I mean, it was kind of the day of, he, he was on my side, kind of helping me walk through the process and, and, uh, it, it, you know, the whole thing was kind of uh, – that, that was the night that Ted Cruz would not endorse Trump famously, right? Oh, yeah, right? And yeah. It kind of – it blew it all up. And so the next day, it was more of, uh, you know, the next morning all the Spanish media wanted to meet with me because I spoke in Spanish, and that was a big deal. And and um, But the talk was more Ted Cruz, you know? Right. So I got more questions about that of, well, what do you think? I said, well, I would – I would view that as a political error is what I said. You don't come to a convention. I think that's how I termed it in Spanish. It's a, yeah. it's a political error. You don't come to a convention and not endorse the candidate. If right. you're going to come and do that, it's just, it's understood you're going to do it. And when you don't, people noticed. And there was more talk about that. And I think when I got to meet with um, Senator McConnell that night, he was uh, in one of his booths, you know, kind of overseeing things. I went up to, to say hello. And, uh, and he goes, well, Ralph, you know, that, that would have been the speech of the night if it hadn't been for Ted Cruz. Blowing it, blowing himself up is what he said, and he was and he was probably right. I mean, that was a lot of the. It's exactly the how he would have said it too. That was a good impersonation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but that that's that's what he kind of told me. I'll never forget that either. He's just yeah. like you know, he said, it would have been great, but this guy blew himself up, and that was the whole talk of the town the next day. So. Yeah, that's hilarious. Yeah. Well, I love it. Well, I hope you guys are able to get the uh, charter schools bill passed this year. If you can't get it this year, hopefully next year. Um, I know the people of Kentucky are behind it. Uh, if you guys can get things together at the state legislature, but um, you know, I know you're championing it and you're pushing it and it's been great talking to you today. I know you've got a lot of stuff to get to, but thanks for uh, taking the time out of your schedule to pop on with us. And, and I love the story about the speech because it was awesome. I always wanted to ask you about that after it happened. I think you've been on my show a couple of times and we never got yeah. around to it, but uh, just fantastic. It was great. So sounds good. Leland. I appreciate it, man. All right. Have, have, a, many time. I'll be the chat. have a great day. You too, thanks. All right, bye-bye. Uh, really cool. I love that story because if it, you go Google Ralph Alvarado speaks to RNC and it'll pull it right up and you can watch the speech on YouTube. It was really good. Um, very substantive and it was a very proud moment if you're from Kentucky and you believe in liberty and freedom and, and all the promise of America. It was just a really powerful, powerful speech. And so great, great getting that story from him. Um, all right, well, big thanks to our friends at Louisville Cabinets and Countertops. Uh, they are the reason we are able to do this podcast. And uh, guys, I know it's been kind of a weird hiatus recently. I had some website problems, but we are back up and running. And you're going to see at least one, possibly two episodes a week going forward. Um, but uh, so it's fun to kick that off. And we appreciate Louisville Cabinets and Countertops for helping us out with this. 
Um, the phone number is 502-930-3304. Talk to the great designers on staff there. And if you want to get your dream kitchen taken care of, start to finish, turn it over to them. They'll walk you through it. They'll, they'll, they'll set up and talk to you and figure out what it is that makes you tick, what would be great for you, what your dreams are, and then they'll make those dreams come true. If you're a do-it-yourselfer, you already have a plan, you know what you're doing, hey, they've got really beautiful cabinets in all styles, high-quality affordable cabinets, no problems with the supply chain. So check them out there. It's uh, louisvillecabinetsandcountertops.com, 502-930-3304. As always, a big thanks to Dynamics Audio Productions for their help with this program. You can follow us on Instagram. It's at Greatly Londo. And on Twitter, it's at uh, Leland Show. And then, of course, <clears throat> it is a free download. And uh, you can share it with your friends from Apple Podcasts, Google Play, um, as well as the iHeartRadio media app. So get that on there and uh, download us to your pocket. Uh, thanks again for listening. I am Leland Conway, 630K. I said my radio station to differ. Sorry about that. I am Leland Conway. It is the disruption zone. That's what it is, the disruption zone.